So I thought, you need to make some money, like real money. And I got to get a job. Just thinking about it then when I was 22, made me nauseous. And I really just didn't want to get a job. But I got a call one day right around that time from this guy in Boulder who's like, hey, I'm pretty new to town. I want to build a venture studio, a startup studio. I had no idea what it was. He's like, well, we have a $30 million venture capital fund. But what makes us different as a studio is we build all of our own companies in-house. We actually do the MVPing and the validation and we fund them versus a typical venture capital fund, which would just invest in outside companies and hope that they grow. And he's like, I need somebody to be in charge of everything marketing. And I heard you're the guy in town to do that. So I came on board as the VP of branding. And my job was basically for every company that we were starting, I was in charge of building the website, coming up with the name, doing the logo, creating the brand guidelines and the deck and building the initial thing. Having done that now for one single product, when you are doing the marketing, you're doing the branding, you're doing the website, you were doing it all for a product that if it exists at all, it's in its earliest stages and things are going to rapidly change. Doing that for one company, it is so much work. Yeah. I can't even imagine doing it for multiple companies and products totally. at the same time. Totally. So, well, you know wow. what it was? It forced me to come up with a system. We had to develop a whole playbook and a framework to handle that. Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome back to Designing Growth. Sam Schulbowski here, co-founder of Motion.io and host of this podcast, joining you again. Jake Hurwitz, founder of Thursday Labs. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. It's Friday. Things are going good. We did a bunch of work on our product this week. It's been a really exciting time for us here at Motion.io. Just a heap of new features coming to the platform. And that's always fun, man. So yeah, things are good. How about yourself? Yeah, things are great. I mean, look, it's been a wild couple of years. So it's easy to be like, oh, you know, we're stressed. We're hanging in there. Everyone's having a hard time in the market. Overall, it's life is good, man. Keeping it positive. Trying a lot of new ways to build relationships with companies right now in a weird time when everything, how we sell, how we build relationships, it's all changing really fast. And what we're selling, what we're doing with companies, it's all changing really fast. So it's been difficult for a lot of people, including us, and candidly dealing with that, navigating it. And so things are good, but like we're grinding, dude. I'm under the gun right now. The things that the market have been doing, you know, general buyer sentiment has been really hard for a lot of companies out there, especially if you are anybody in the tech or tech adjacent space. But it was interesting, like when all of this stuff started to really come to a head, I think about six months ago or so, when the inflation recession panic was at an all time high, it scared the living daylights out of me, especially as like a new company. I actually listened to a couple of different podcasts, a couple of different voices in the SaaS tech space who were saying like, hey, now's actually a decent time to start a company because if you can find funding or you can fund something yourself, you're going to have less competition as long as you can stay lean, as long as you can move fast, get your whatever product, service, et cetera, get it to market. And there's an opportunity there. But either way, despite any opportunity, it's still terrifying. So yeah, absolutely. Dude. I would even maybe gently push back and say, this is the best time, not a, a decent time. This is the best time to start a company. I do too, honestly. And I don't even know why I tried to tiptoe into that. And I think it took me some time to get to that point. And maybe you're just seeing me get to that point in real time right now. Sure. But yeah, I'm seeing what's going on. And I'm like, okay, now is your opportunity to stand out in what is almost always every single month of every single year, one of the most crowded markets in existence. Totally. And things open up. There's these little glimmers of opportunity in there. And if you 
find one and chase it. It's go all in. Totally, man. It's a thing. So I would love to just take a step back here for just a second and talk about what you've been up to. Because for the listeners out there, Jake and I actually were classmates at the University of Colorado Boulder. We weren't super close, but we had met a couple of times. I reached out to him the other day, reconnected, and I've been seeing the content you're putting out. But I don't know the journey that you've been on the last couple of years, basically since moving away from Colorado, going to New York. And I would love to just hear your story. What have you been doing up until this point? And then tell me what you're doing at Thursday Labs right now. Yeah, totally. It's a very windy, kind of long story. I'll try to make it as exciting as possible without sharing a 20-minute story here. So when we met, we were in college and I started a creative agency when I was 18, the middle of my freshman year of college. It was pretty straightforward. It was 2013, 2014. Techstars was blowing up in Boulder. A lot of people yeah. from the Bay Area and New York and Boston and other big cities were coming to Boulder and Denver to build their startups in the front range. That was the birth of the Colorado startup ecosystem from my perspective, really. And the problem, though, that existed on the marketing and creative side was, yes, there were quite a few agencies in town. Big boys. You probably know, remember, like, Kristen Porter-Bogusky, Made Movement. I mean, they were big agencies. They were awesome. Worked inside Crispin Porter-Bogusky as an intern, actually, yeah. in school. Boulder, just like such an entrepreneurial town. It's totally. like crazy. I've never been to another place like it. Or can't think of another place outside of SF or New York. I had a strange perspective on it, though. I'm from New York, and I'm kind of used to growing up in this world where you've got agencies and companies, and they could actually afford to work with each other and their neighbors. Like, literally, they're on the same block. But in Boulder, that wasn't happening. You had companies like CPB, agencies who were working with clients like Lyft and Burger King out of whatever other city they were in. And all the startups, which made up like all of downtown in Boulder, couldn't work with any of the local agencies because they were way too big and expensive. So their alternative was to go hire an intern from the university for like 50 bucks a week. And they sucked because they're like low level talent. And they're, these are venture backed companies that needed really good websites, great product design, great advertising and marketing and to tell a story. And they were doing none of that. So the space that I chose to build in, and it was awesome, was let's start an agency that these startups could actually afford. Let's own the market of all the startups here. Now, for someone in their late teens, early 20s, that makes a lot of sense. Like We were making a couple grand a week, which was amazing for us as college kids. Can't really live off that anymore as now being much older than that. But at the time, it was a great start. So I really fell in love with the startup scene and the marketing and creative side of the startup scene during those years. I consider them, I mean, it was college. So for a lot of people, like your college years are your very formative years in your career. These years were so formative for me in my career in so many ways. I started to build my network. I learned how to network. I fell in love with tech and, and entrepreneurship and venture capital, the startup scene in general. It all happened in Boulder during those years. I got kind of tired of working with clients as I was getting older. I was, I think, my senior year in college and decided to build a startup. So raised a bit of money from some, some local angels in town, built this ed tech startup and worked on it for about a year and a half, failed. It was an amazing journey, learned how to raise some money and like how to build a product versus building a company where I work on many other people's products. Was also then going through a really difficult breakup and the company shut down and had graduated from college not long ago. So I was in a pretty dark place. First time in my life where I just felt really lost. And so I thought, you need to make some money, like real money, and I got to get a job. Just thinking about it then when I was 22, 
made me nauseous. And I really just didn't want to get a job. But I got a call one day right around that time from this guy in Boulder who's like, hey, I'm pretty new to town. I want to build a venture studio, a startup studio. I had no idea what it was. He's like, well, we have a $30 million venture capital fund. But what makes us different as a studio is we build all of our own companies in-house. We actually do the MVPing and the validation and we fund them. And then we spin them up and let them grow from there versus a typical venture capital fund, which would just invest in outside companies and hope that they grow. And he's like, I need somebody to be in charge of everything marketing. And I heard you're the guy in town to do that. So I came on board as the VP of branding. And my job was basically for every company that we were starting, I was in charge of building the website, coming up with the name, doing the logo, like creating the brand guidelines and the deck and building the initial thing. Having done that now for one single product, when you are doing the marketing, you're doing the branding, you're doing the website, you were doing it all for a product that if it exists at all, it's in its earliest stages and things are going to rapidly change. Doing that for one company, holy shit, it is so much work. Yeah. I can't even imagine doing it for multiple companies and products totally. at the same time. Totally. So, well, you know wow. what it was? It forced me to come up with a system. I'm like, all right, you know, let's say first quarter we're working on one company and then we start the next company in Q2 and the next company in Q3. Okay. At first you're like, all right, great. I could do one thing per quarter. But then I quickly realized like the one that you started in Q1 doesn't just go away in Q2. Now I work on two in Q2. I'm halfway through the first one and starting the second one. And then Q3 rolls around and I'm starting the third one. So now I've got three to work on. By the time you're in like year four, Q2, there's 15 projects to work on. So I had to build a system and a team to like, hand off things like a factory. And so over time, as we grew and the studio matured and we had like 10, 15 companies in the portfolio that we had built all of them. Sure, some had like matured and we weren't working on them every day, but we still were involved in some capacity. I had to, we had to develop a whole playbook and, and a framework to, to handle that. That is the studio model. Wow. So that was like part two. Part three is we were really struggling as a studio to raise money for our ventures from outside investors to raise LP dollars for the studio itself. We had our own fund and we wanted to raise fund too. And we were really having a hard time getting entrepreneurs to come and join the startups that we were building. It was just a new thing for everybody. No one understood the economics. LPs like barely even understood venture capital as a two and 20 standard model, let alone this new thing that we were doing, which had a different economic makeup. And entrepreneurs were just like, so are you an accelerator or are you a fund? And we're like, well, we're we kind of flavors of both. So we figured out the solution to this was to first identify who are all the other studios around the world. We're not competing with each other. Like what would we be competing for? Ideas? Like didn't matter. And then start talking to them be like, well, how do you guys raise money? How do you guys attract entrepreneurs? We needed to build a community of all the studios to connect with each other and help each other become a great studio. So my team and I started the Global Startup Studio Network in 2017, 2018. It first started as a Slack channel. It was before the phrase digital community was a thing. Not to be like we were the first digital community, we were early, but we didn't have a phrase for it. We were just like, join our Slack channel and we'll talk about anything that's troubling us. And then it quickly blew up. So we identified about 80 studios around the world. And within about two weeks, we had 67 join the Slack channel. So it turns out wow. we all had this same problem and we needed to meet each other to solve the problem. We started asking the better studios to lead roundtables and give talks for the more emerging ones so that we could learn. And everyone was learning a lot really quickly. 
Then, long story short, we ended up selling GSSN to GAN, the Global Accelerator Network. So GAN was down yeah. the street in Denver. They're a global consortium, basically, of all the accelerators in the world. And they probably had like, I think, 1,000 or 2,000 in their network at the time. And we basically helped them open their eyes to see studios as being the next big asset class like accelerators. So we, we sold the company. So that was essentially my first exit. It wasn't a life-changing exit, but it was wonderful enough for me to like take a second to figure out what I wanted to do next. At the same time that we sold GSSN, uh, myself and a few other folks, you know, the co-founders of the, the organization, we wrote the first white paper on the startup studio model. And that was the initial like, hey world, this is what a startup studio is. This is what it's not. This is how you can engage with it if you are one of the various stakeholders, various calls to action from there. And I always just thought of it as like, this should be just a long blog post, but it's too long for a blog post. So let's make it a nicely designed PDF and call it a white paper. And then I like press publish and walked away. Didn't really think much of it. No one paid me to do it. I just thought it should be out there. But then I moved back to New York. And over the next couple of months, I started getting more and more and more emails and texts and calls from people. Hey, Jake, I'm so-and-so from Portugal. or I'm so-and-so from Charlotte, North Carolina, every corner of the world. People were reaching out and saying like, hey, I'm starting a new studio. I Googled startup studios and I found GSSN and I read your white paper. I saw that you wrote it. Can you help me build my studio? I was like, okay. I spent the next two years or so working with about a hundred studios all over the world. Some were like small, take a few calls and help us understand like how to raise money or how to talk to investors. And some were huge, like come on board for six months as our head of whatever, our advisor and like help us actually build the playbook, build the docs, build the ecosystem, build the website, do the whole thing. So I learned a lot about venture capital during that time, had helped quite a few studios raise money and, and move money. And I really loved it. And then COVID hit. And I went back to Colorado to get out of New York for a little while, basically brought my monthly expenses down to like under $1,000 a month, which really wish I could do that now. I've got to figure out ways to do that now. But I moved to a small mountain town about an hour west of Denver called Silverthorne. I'm going to lock myself in this house for the next year. And I am going to do nothing but build my own startup studio now and raise money for it on the internet and then snowboard and mountain bike in the like one free hour a day that I can so that I don't drive myself too crazy. <laughs> so I did that. It was an interesting year. It was a very safe and productive way to spend COVID, I would say. Uh, it was tough, but it got us to the next level. The interesting thing, long story short, was I had a hard time raising for my own studio, even though I was the guy who helped build so many other studios. I didn't really have a track record of myself being a wildly successful exited founder. And I did not have a track record of being a wildly successful investor with an audited portfolio. Those are the core ingredients that a new studio needs. But I did have this great track record at helping new studios that were founded by those types of people get started. With my co-founders at the time, we shifted the whole philosophy and, and thesis to becoming the first fund of funds to invest in new studios. So what does that mean? For those who are listening who don't fully understand or know much about how venture capital works behind the scenes, venture capital funds are funded by LPs, which are limited partners. Those are often like pension funds or university funds or, or very rich individuals, high net worth individuals, who have like hundreds of millions of dollars or family offices. So we wanted to be one of the LPs that would invest in the best new venture studios. And 
after like, I don't know, three months of doing that, word kind of got out. I got a call from a bigger company who uh, was really blowing up. They were like the, the unicorn of all unicorns of the year. Um, if anyone looks at my LinkedIn, they'll know who that was. They're basically like, would you be interested in leaving your partners and do that here? And they sent me an offer I like could not refuse. It was a really hard decision. I'm 25 or 26. Here I am like trying to raise tens and hundreds of millions of dollars for a thing that no one's ever heard of during a global pandemic. Like even saying that out loud, I laugh at myself for how, how insane it was. But like, what else was I going to do? Fucking freelance on Upwork? Like, no, I want to do something crazy. And monthly expenses <laughs> were so low. So anyway, I took that gig and the market like really took off at that point. This was right around after the vaccines came out and people started to move back to their cities and venture was just like unleashed and money was just everywhere. And I'm glad I took the gig, even though I only lasted at that new company for about three months. It took about six months to like clear my head and just think, like, what do I really want to do here? Like I was feeling like by the day I was becoming more and more of a finance guy. But if you look back to like where it all started for me, like I'm a marketing guy, I'm a creative guy, I'm a content guy, I'm a storytelling guy. If I have 12 hours of productive time in a day, like I want to spend six to 10 of them in like Photoshop and Figma and Premiere and social media. I don't want to spend six to 10 of those hours in Excel. And that's what I found myself doing. So I was just kind of miserable. So I took some time off. I spent all my time, like, again, advising a few new studios, doing a lot of jujitsu and cooking a lot of food, just like being healthy. And found myself then with an opportunity to join a startup called Day One as the CMO. So I then spent a year doing that. And it was still in the space of like proliferating entrepreneurs and, and doing venture capital and all that. But I was getting then back to my initial roots of being a marketer and a builder and like building a thing. And I wanted to try just like building one thing again versus helping many others building things. And I did not want to raise a fund, let alone raise anything at the time. I was really burnt out from it. So yeah, joined day one as CMO. Was there for about a year until the market crashed. And that then led me to Thursday Labs. So I'll kind of leave you with this little cliffhanger before you probably ask the next question, like what's Thursday Labs all about? We're trying to be the agency that like actually produces ROI and every other agency out there is like, oh, like we're not really sure how successful this could be, but like it'll probably help. We like to be an agency that actually brings revenue. First off, what a USP, man. That is like buttoned up and bulletproof. I really like that. The agency that actually brings in ROI. It's like so easy to say. Kudos. I'm sure you've noticed it too. Like you talk to marketers and agencies and you're like, all right, if I'm going to spend, you know, 50 grand on this, what's it going to produce for us? What does everyone say? I don't know. I just mentioned this in our Slack channel. There's like this whole thing with marketing where when you approach a agency or a studio, they tend to advertise like the back of the toilet paper packaging where it's like, 16 roles equals 24 roles. And you're like, what does this mean? And marketers, I think a lot of times, especially when they're coming outside, they're not internal to the company, they can pitch a very same thing. It's like, this investment means this ROI. And it's like, how are we going to get there? They don't know the specifics of that, or they sure. can't break down like, here's what your conversions are going to look like. Here are your conversion sources. Here are the things that we're going to be doing to generate a marketing strategy that is going to consistently fill all aspects of the funnel. Totally. It's like, you nailed it. It feels like people can't answer that. And, and, I, and I was dealing with it. Like, first of all, my first agency, I was that guy. I didn't know what I was doing. People were like, all right, if you're going to charge me 10K, what should I expect to see in a month and six months? And I, I always just would say, oh, it's hard to tell. I can't answer that for you. You're asking the wrong questions. And then I wouldn't land the business. And I'd get frustrated that all these clients out there were 
not smart enough or like didn't understand it. No, no. That was my fault. That was on me. And then I went and started working with all these agencies and they were all doing the same thing. I was like, what is happening here? Is no one listening to the client? Is no one listening to the customer? That's what we got to do. So now that I'm back in agency world, I ask a few questions or quite a few questions. We have a strategy. And then I figure out like, can this strategy even work for what they sell and how much revenue they get per unit and what is a unit? And then we run it. And I'll never, ever advise them to spend a dollar unless it brings at least $2 back. It's just that simple. Amen. I think what's especially interesting about your story and kind of where you are now is we talk with a lot of creative agencies on the show, design agencies, advertising agencies, digital marketers, but I think you're the first guest that I've spoken with that is specific to the startup space. Okay. And I think that there's some things that you have shared that are kind of like the dogma within the startup space, but I don't think it necessarily extends to other agencies out of there. One of the things that comes glaring to me is startup founders, CMOs, people who are working at startups, they're hyper obsessed with the intersection of data and strategy. And being able to provide information about how those two things intersect is really, really useful for being able to confidently and effectively close those clients. Right. Because I think that that's something that sometimes gets overlooked. Even if you are, let's say, a small creative web design agency, you have maybe a single employee work with you, you are doing one to two clients a month. The way that you can close more deals is if you take that same mentality and say, so this is what building a new website with us can do for your business. We can't give you any specific numbers on how much traction you will receive, but here's what similar clients have experienced with us in the past. If you can call those things out in your sales calls, in your emails, in your marketing copy, that's going to make you a much stronger candidate, regardless of what types of businesses that you're working with. And I love how you bring this mentality as a founder of a creative agency, because I think that there's a lot that anybody else listening to this podcast who has a creative business in any shape or form can learn from. Absolutely. It's refreshing to chat with someone who gets it. So thank you. Well, we're both in the startup space. It makes sense that we're aligned on a lot of things. I wanted to talk about too with your background. There were a lot of points in the way where you had either failures or missteps. And hearing you retell this story, you are so confident and unafraid to not only talk about your failures, but talking about your skill set and where you were lacking. Taking a step back and kind of internalizing what your weaknesses are in a lot of ways can be just as powerful for your growth as that outright confidence. Totally. I tie a lot of stuff to jujitsu. It's kind of like being vegan or doing CrossFit. Like, How will you know someone is vegan or CrossFit? <laughs> They'll tell you. Same with jujitsu. We always talk about it. One of the things that I focus on a lot in my game and the jujitsu players that I respect the most and learn from, meaning my coaches and professors or those that I follow online, they all kind of share the same strategy, which is like, first off, everyone will get to a point soon where they like really check their ego at the door, whether it's in your first class or your 10th class or your 100th class, but like everyone gets there eventually. And that happened for me very quickly. It was like my third day and I'm a 200 pound, six, three man and a 90 pound, 13 year old girl tapped me like four times, like tapped me out four times in like a five minute <laughs> round. And that is very humbling and really makes you check your ego. One of the things that I learn a lot is these high level players will roll with a white belt, a blue belt, someone who's a lot more beginner and completely check their ego and let themselves get into very dangerous, vulnerable positions that 99% you're not going to get out of. You're not going to, quote unquote, survive it. You, you have to tap out. Let yourself get to that point 
and then work how to get out. Don't be afraid of the failure. Don't be afraid of looking like an amateur in front of that new white belt. When I train, like I'm not seeking at all to win. I'm seeking to not tap out and put myself in a really nasty position because the more I practice that, then I'm unstoppable, right? That's kind of how I look at it. So it's like, I'll put myself right at the staring face to face with failure every single day. And sometimes it might happen. It happens actually all the time. Doing that over and over again, like there's no better way to ultimately really succeed. I think in some ways that analogy gets to why I think entrepreneurship can be so incredibly addictive once it gets your claws into you. As yeah. you shared in your story, it's like, you are unable to see another way. You're unable to break out of that. Yeah. For another example, it's like in some ways being thrown into a dirt pit and having to build your own tools to get yourself out of it. Nobody's coming there with a ladder or a rope. You got to find it. You know, maybe you dig deeper and maybe you dig your way out, but you have to find a way out somewhere and nobody's there to help. Totally. And I actually had this like this month. You can't sleep. You're so down on yourself. Things are not working. You're scared. You're nervous, anxious as hell. It happens all the time, ups and downs. And then something happens where you're thinking you're forcing yourself to like get out of this hole. And then you figure out the solution. Kind of like, all right, I'm in this dirt hole. There's nothing here except for rain and dirt and like a couple of little rocks. It's 25. <laughs> you're stuck. You're scared. And you finally like think clearly, pay attention. You ask the questions. You ask for help. And next thing you know, you've like figured out how to use water to make some mud and then use the sunlight to turn it into rock and then use that to make some stairs to get out. And you're like, where did that even come from? Like, that is cool. You feel really damn good about yourself after that. But if you didn't ever get yourself in that hole, like you would have never learned those skills. You would have never built the relationships you had to build with the people that helped you. That's a huge win. I would love to dig in a little bit to some of the more specific aspects of Thursday Labs from your experience as the founder of a well-established creative agency. How do you look at client experience after a client is onboarded? What are the things that you are doing? What are the things that you see work well? Where have you fallen flat? I would love to know just all of that. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you asked this question. I wish more people asked me this question because I have an answer that I really stand by and, and have stood by for a very long time. Candidly, I don't know where it came from, but I remember sharing this with my team when I was like 19 or 20 years old running my first agency. And the quote is, like, we're never going to be the best creatives in the world. Sorry, photographer, you're just never going to be the best photographer in the world. Sorry, designer, you're never going to be the best designer in the world. Tough love, suck it up. There will always be someone with the same tools as you who's just more talented and better. But here's the reality. It doesn't matter because you're not going to win business by being the best in the world. You're not getting that client down the street because they don't know the difference between first best and second best. It still looks amazing to them. What we will win on is being the best in the world to work with. So to answer your question, client experience is the most important thing in my mind all the time. That's how we operate and that's how we win. And what comes from that? What do you think? Referrals. Lots of referrals. Referrals, baby. The gold mine, I think in a lot of ways. And first of all, I love your answer. And it's something I was literally just typing out for a LinkedIn post earlier, talking about like how to scale a creative agency. And the words that I wrote were your technical skills and your abilities are not the thing that's going to help you grow a sustainable, scalable, extremely profitable business. The thing that helps you do that, it has to do with first, the culture that you create both internally and your culture of working with clients. So that client experience comes into play. 
And then these systems and processes that add to your client experience. Because if you're running around, you're looking for things, you can't find something, files go missing, you send a client a wrong version of something, every one of those things is a point against your relationship with that client. Granted, there are things that you can do to rectify that situation. It can be something as simple as great. Okay, we messed up. I'm going to come personally meet with you. I'm going to come hop on a phone call with you right away. I'm going to be crystal clear about what we messed up on, how we're going to try to improve this. And I'm going to give you complete candor and no bullshit and hyperbole with that. Totally. Underrated as hell. Goes such a long way. I read this quote or tweet or thread or something the other day. Admit your mistakes. People like you more for it. Think about it. Last time someone was like, oh, fuck, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. You're like, damn, I really respected you before that. And now I respect you more because you're a human like me and you make mistakes and and you owned it. We'll take care of it. Admit what you don't know. Hey, Jake, what was the ROI on this? I don't know, Um, (laughs) but I will get you that answer and more. Let me get right back to you. And then you go get the answer. Something we like to do, we're actually trying to figure out a way to do this right now, automate it more and make it more of a consistent thing. But like, we're constantly tracking every week. Like, what did we do? What did we spend on that? And what? was ROI on it. And I've done it like on a monthly basis. Sometimes I've done weekly. Now I'm really serious about every Friday, every client at the same time, the same time every Friday, they receive a very easy to digest report from us. This is what we did this week. This is what the results were. If that's a negative number, like, okay, we'll work on that. You know, that's a different story. But having this culture, like constantly making sure that they, the culture is, it's all about ROI. And that's what I want to really hammer down. So just a couple more questions before we wrap up here. And Jake, thanks so much for coming on. The time like flew by here. I kind of kept chatting for another hour easy. Totally. But uh, so you're in New York right now and you are moving to LA. You actually shared with me offline. What prompted that decision? I grew up in New York. I've been in New York now a total of 21 or something years of my life. I'm growing up. I got a dog about 10 months ago or something like that. He's a big boy. I surf oh, a wow. lot. What kind of dog? A uh, yellow lab. Oh, beautiful. New York is small real estate, small spaces, very, very expensive. It costs like $150 just to breathe outside for a minute. And I'm just at this point where I work from home all day. And then I train in the evenings and walk my dog at one of the few dog parks around the neighborhood and or go to a client dinner or event and then sleep and rinse and repeat. And then on the weekends, I still work through the weekends a lot, but I sit in traffic to get to the beach and surf or sit in traffic to go camping or snowboarding or somewhere upstate. And it's all like decent outdoor access. I mean, being in Colorado for so long, I'm such a spoiled brat when it comes to nature that out here, it actually like is depressing to be on a hike or surfing for me. I can see that. I mean, in school, like, I don't know about you. I had one semester where I had classes Tuesday and Thursday only. And I would go snowboarding literally Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. I would take Sundays off for homework, but four days out of the week, I was up at the mountains. Did the exact same thing. You know what? I had years where I did New York. I'd be at dinners and dates and like hitting these cool clubs and staying out till five in the morning and all the things. Like now I I go to bed at 10, I wake up at six, I work out, I train, I surf. My business does great in New York. It'll also do great in Los Angeles and any other large city. I'm not ready to be in the outskirts yet. And I have a lot of friends in Los Angeles, so... I don't know if LA is the long haul for me, but I do see myself settling down on like in like a coastal California town or something like that. And I want to start exploring. And so soft landing to where all the homies are in LA 
I love it, man. I love it. And kudos for you too, seeking out the lifestyle that you know is going to be the most healthy and productive for you. It's not an easy thing to do. It's really easy to get caught in the grind. I'm excited for Thanks, you. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. One last question here before we go. If people want to know more about you and the work that you're doing, where should they go to check you out? Where are you hanging out online? Yeah, it's uh, LinkedIn and Instagram. So Link, I post a lot almost every day, about like three or four times a day. I have people all the time being like, dude, post less on LinkedIn. I use my LinkedIn to test all these new algorithms and tools for creating content. So like if I put out a new series, people might not realize it, but I'm actually testing different AI tools and GPT and all that to create that content to see how things are landing for my clients. So I can come back and be like, I just did this type of new content series on LinkedIn and it got these results. Or I just did this series on LinkedIn, it got no results or whatever. The content I put out at the same time, I do find to be, it's not random shit. It's like valuable about growth, about marketing, about branding, about storytelling, about content, and of course, startups and venture capital. So follow me on LinkedIn and then Instagram is, I do have a public account now and I like to recap a lot of the fun work we're doing, but my Instagram's a little more personal. Same with my TikTok. The lifestyle of like traveling a lot, being a dog dad, building cool things, enjoying nature, making music. And it's like, that's, that's the life I live in for those who are into that as well. Love it, man. And we will put links to those things in the show notes of this episode. Jake Hurwitz, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an awesome chat. I'd love to have you back on in the future because I think we could do like a three hour episode and that would be super sick. Yeah. But thanks again for coming on and talk to you again soon. Thank you, Sam. This has been another great episode of Designing Growth. Have fun, good luck, and go crush it. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.